Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Frontiers 3D Visionaries Speak Roundtable. My name is Karen Dowell, and I'm Editorial Director at New Frontiers. For those of you who are not familiar with us, our mission is to educate researchers and foster discussions among thought leaders and innovators who are working to transform drug discovery using 3D in vitro technologies. In previous years, we've done this by organizing intensive one-day symposia, but like many meeting organizers, we've gone digital this year due to the pandemic. We decided to organize our digital program into a series of KOL roundtables and offer a free curated news digest to keep you informed of advancements in the field until it's safe to hold our next in-person symposium. Today, we have a panel of four distinguished microphysiological systems experts who will be tackling the complex topic of industrial applications for organotic chip systems. Before we get started, however, I wanna point out the Q&A function on the bottom of your screen. You can use this pane to ask questions during the talk. We'll queue them up for our presenters during, to answer during the Q&A session as time permits. You can also use the chat window to post live commentary and share your opinions with the audience in real time. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce today's panelists. First, we have Professor Peter Losco. Peter is assistant professor at the Research Institute for Women's Health Faculty of Medicine at Eberhardt Calls University, Tübingen. He's also head of innovative innovation field at Fraunhofer IGB, coordinator of the European Organ on Ship Training Network MSCA ITN Euro OOC and vice chair of the European Organ on Chip Society. He holds a PhD in physics from Starland University and worked as a postdoc fellow at UC Berkeley. In 2015, he was named one of Technology Review's Innovators Under 35 Germany and was awarded a, has been awarded a Fraunhofer Attract starting grant. His interdisciplinary microorganolab -organo combines approaches from engineering, biology, physics, and medicine to generate and apply novel microphysiological tissue models that recapitulate complex human biology in vitro. Next, we have Professor Jaap Tunder. Jaap is a full professor and chair of the microsystems, microsystems section at Eindhoven University of Technology and former principal scientist and chief technologist at Philips Research. He received his PhD in mechanical engineering from Delft University of Technology. Yop's research focuses on the investigation and development of novel microsystems, microsystem design approaches, and out of clean room fabrication technologies. His application focuses on microfluidic chips, biomedical devices, organ on chips, and soft microrobotics. The sections, his section's research approaches are often biologically inspired, translating principles from nature into technolo technological innovations. Representing the industry perspective, we have Dr. Florian Fuchs, a, a senior principal scientist at Nuvasan Innovation Campus Berlin. Florian is a lab head within the lead discovery at Innovation Campus Berlin and former group leader on complex cellular models and cell-based screening at Novartis Basel. He holds a PhD in chemistry from the Ludwig Macmillan's University in Munich. And finally, representing the industrial biotechnology perspective is Dr. Olivier Frey, Vice President and Head of Technologies and Platforms at Insphero AG. Olivier is the lead project manager of microphysiological systems at Insphero. He's a former group leader of the bioengineering labor laboratory at ETH Zurich, and he holds a, bio a doctoral degree in microtechnology from the Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne and a master's in microtechnology and mechanics from ETH Zurich. And now I'll turn it over to Olivier who will be leading today's discussion. Olivier? Thank you very much, Karen. And also from my end, welcome to this, uh, to this round table uh, on a topic I think that addresses challenges that we all face when, when constructing different uh, complex in vitro systems. And I'm happy to have this great panelist here on board and I'm persuaded that we will have a, a very interesting discussion with a couple of conclusions that will help us all to, to shape these um, organ and chip system or microphysiological systems um, in the future. But when we are speaking about complex microphysiological or complex in vitro system, I mean, we mostly refer to this organ and a chip uh, and MPS systems, but with some physiological complexity, we, we also 
have um, operational complexity that comes uh, that comes into play. But before to start, I would like to introduce a little bit where this physiological relevant complex in vitro systems come from. And I believe that is kind of a, a, an emergence of, of three different fields that made or that built the ground that these different systems are built today. So on the one branch, we had the evolvement of 3D tissue cultures uh, in the past a couple of decades, where new protocols, new methods on how three-dimensional tissue structures um, can be used, um, protocols that evolved in the means of what cell sources are used, how these cells are transformed, and what kind of matrices are used to create three-dimensional structures. In parallel, we had the MEMS industry uh, that evolved in the direction of microfluidics, uh, having scales, being able to culture cells at the miniature level. And the convergence of these two systems made it possible to create systems in which the environment around the cells can be engineered in a way so that these cells behave pretty similarly as they behave in vivo. And at the same time, the third factor was certainly um, the need on the pharmaceutical industry where the prices and the time to market um, a medicine became longer and longer and more expensive and more expensive. And all these factors made that this organ and chip sector or this microphysiological sector became exponentially increasing worldwide and why we basically have this discussion here. But with this physiological complexity, we also have this operational complexity that comes into play. And maybe one quick example that I can show is when you assemble a multi-tissue system, mostly it is underestimated how the bioproduction, how the cell sourcing, how the assembly of this complex system needs to be orchestrated so that in the end, you have a multi-tissue system in which every element is working properly so that the whole system itself is, is working as, as it should. But let's start into the discussion and start off with the first topic to talk a little bit and to define a little bit what we understand with scalability and what we understand also with complexity. And I think the first thing what we might need to address is what are the main features that make, let's say, or that to, to create physiological complexity? And maybe Peter, being in the field since quite some time, you have your definition and you maybe can share this with the audience. Yes, I mean, in principle, as most things, it depends on the question to answer, but um, an organ chip will always in, integrate at some point cells, um, cues from the environment, mechanical or electrical stimuli. So the complexity will really um, increase the more your question or the more complex your question gets. Um, but that would be, um, in my definition, the minimal requirements. What often is also seen as, a, as an additional requirement is a vascular to like perfusion, which also comes into, into play with the mechanical stimuli, but also with the transport processes. Can you already say which of these factors play an important role when you think about reproducibility? Um, what are the critical of them? So which one of them do you think are the most that you need to have on the control to preserve a certain amount of reproducibility? And in most cases, it's the, it is the cells. Um, by moving towards these, these complex human systems, moving away from cell lines, um, you get the, the issue of, of um, cell sourcing and reliable cell sourcing. Um, I think this is one of the, the key aspects of having the reproducibility. Um, the engineering parts, let's say the, the micro um, structuring, the microfabrication is usually easier, easier to keep robust and reproducible. Um, in at, at least at the, the current scales. Yeah, so Jaap, do you share that opinion? Or if you think about, if you start to design a microphysiological system, do you first think about what cells do I need to integrate or how it needs the structure to be and then you put the cells in, let's say, simplified? Yeah, so as, as Peter mentioned, things, of course, the way you approach a problem also depends on the question that you would like to answer. And I think things mm -hmm. go hand in hand. 
So of course, what we do, we approach because we are engineers and eh? we're technologists and, and we take the approach from that part. And actually we do not even know which questions to, ans to, uh, to answer, right? Uh, so we work together with biologists and biomedical people actually to do that. So, and, and then I think when developing technology for a certain application, what we need is first a stable situation in which we have as least variability as possible, in which we have things under control. So we develop technology usually on the basis of, let's say, stable cell lines. Uh, and those are just, let's say, meant for developing the technology up to a certain level at which you can control that, at which you have a stable situation, in which you have things under control. And then you move to the, the really difficult part, because then you will include, let's say, relevant cells and maybe even at some point the patient, mature, patient materials. And um, that is uh, so, so that is more difficult indeed in terms of um, control, reproducibility then engineering, then the engineering part, but it's also, of course, inherently variable, right? So the biology gives you an inherent variability, it's just there. And, and it's, I think that the, the artists actually to, uh, to be able to reproducibly do experiments, get results, do readouts, et cetera, but still allow for setting up the system such that you allow for this variability and that you can also interpret that. So I think that's important. But what we do, we start, we start actually at the, at the beginning by developing the technology step by step using a stable biological, more stable biological system towards the, the actual questions. Yeah, I think there's something what I, what I fully agree from, from, from my end, just to make a statement here is this this approach of increasing complexity. So controlling the complexity to increase. So which means that you, you go step by step, you start with a stable cell line where you know the cell will basically not have a lot of variation so that you have basically the technology on the control. And then you add an additional complex uh, step of complexity to ensure that the variation that we see is mostly from the cell and not that suddenly your system is starting to, to be unrobust or, or the fluidics are not working, et cetera, because then you, you, know, you don't know from where, from what source the variability from the variability uh, comes and on that end. Um, so scalability is, is a pretty strong word because it includes reproducibility, it, it includes robustness um, of the system, et cetera. But if we start to talk about scalability and throughput, um, we need to define it a little bit. And I think there, I believe Florian has a, a different thinking about what throughput means or how he thinks about throughput as maybe on the academic level. So let's start with what throughput have you worked, Florian, in the past? And, and where do you say this is a scalable system? Well, Olivier, um... I have worked with the extremes. So, so basically, <laughs> I mean, um, as, as, as my um, pre-speakers um, have already told you, um, when you start, and what we have really also in pharmaceutical industry in our hands is to have robust systems using um, cell lines, for example, right? So there we, we know pretty much the system. We can even run advanced um, 3D cultures using these cell lines pretty robustly in a range of multiple 100,000 compounds, I would even say. So this, I guess, is something that multiple pharmaceutical companies are having um, under control, I would say. But the more complex our cell models are, and it starts, as, as, as mentioned, already with the cells, it starts with um, applying the um, additional mechanical um, or fluidic stimuli, you are getting down with, with this throughput. And I guess something what is really what um, like to be achievable is something in a range of up to 10 to 30,000 of compounds or data points. Um, and this is clearly much different from my early days when I was working in academia, for example, where I was thinking of high throughput already by having to robustly perform up to 100, 100 um, different experiments. And this is, this is the largest scale you normally think in the academic world, I believe, if you're not specialized already on screening purposes, for example. Yeah. So Peter, do, do you agree with these numbers? Is that around the numbers of scalability or do you think, and how do you, how do you control the, 
the robustness or let's say the repeatability of the, of the experiments if you develop the thing where you say, okay, now we have a state where you can say, okay, now we can test some compounds. Now we can do some, some reproducible studies. Do you have some, some quality criteria there? Yes, I mean, first of all, I absolutely agree with the numbers Florian uh, mentioned. And it, it's funny because I actually learned through Florian um, what uh, an industrial high throughput actually means. Because um, as an academic researcher, I thought that if I run 10 to 100 chips, this is, this is really a good throughput. And then um, when I met Florian the first time, he showed me pictures of um, the screening facilities. Um, and I, I knew that I was totally wrong before. Um, so with that, I absolutely agree. Uh, in, in terms of quality controls, and this is actually something which is also a concept um, which is not that much uh, implemented in, in academia and which is really necessary for, for the transition and also for scalability, that you start to in, incorporate quality control uh, mechanisms in your protocols. And I think this is really the key for before you think about any scale, scalability, that you define criteria, what, what it means, that you define criteria in terms of uh, on all scales um, for the cells that you put into the system to make sure you already have um, a good starting point, to define criteria of endpoints or readouts for your system. How long can you read the system when you have set it up? So when is it ready? Do you need a time for the tissue to form to have a certain maturity? And then also the question, how long can you use this system? So just looking at, okay, we can keep it viable for the, a month, that's, that's not enough. You need mm. to really define a time range or time point to in, in what you have a stable system. And having criteria for really the different aspects, also the different disciplines, is I think one of the absolutely key requirements for any type of scalability. I, I fully agree. And I think this is something what is needed also if you if you translate your, let's say, academic system in a more industrial system, uh, thinking about a startup or something, I mean, these are points that need to be addressed as soon as you want to make your systems available for, let's say, for an industrial setting to to ensure what is your quality um, and and that you can that you can uh, communicate this quality control also to your to your final customer, so that he knows with what he is basically working and if it has it he has it on site that he can check is it does it still have the same dysfunctionality that we that initially has been um has been defined so florian would you use system that are not quality controlled or, or what is basically the at what stage would you use it just for proof of concept or <clears throat> I mean, proof of concept is clearly the beginning. Um, I mean, I really would need to know to 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 what extent the, the system is really, let's say, um, characterized, right? I really mm -hmm. need to understand that by a certain defined time frame, I have to expect that the cell line or that the cell population has been um, a defined state, right? Because all my 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 subtle changes that I may potentially induce with a compound or with some other kind of genetic perturbation, for example, needs to be, um, could be very small, right? And, and mm -hmm. therefore, I really need to be sure that my readout is able to, to track it, right? And, and if, there's, if there's just a, a slight variation of about um, a couple of days, for example, which can easily, this current protocol still exist, I guess then you will just miss an effect. Right, and, mm -hmm. and this this will not help you. It's mm -hmm. it's, it's really also um, critical to to have confidence in the system and to also to engage with your additional collaboration partners that that are there in industry, and to um, basically provide them with the insight that this is the system they really should need to perform their next experiments on. If if these if these um, stability is not there, I guess you will not be able to attract them. Yeah. So Jaap, you, you you said that you're, I mean, in, in, in your lab, you're you're interested in in exploring new possibilities of, of how you can integrate microfluidics in different cells, et cetera. Do you already think at that stage on how scalable a system should be or on the reproducibility, or is it at the beginning more an exploration? And at what stage do you 
let's say, do you stop and say, okay, that's something proof of concept. Let's let's see what else we can do. Yeah, I think I think that's a very good question, and that's something a bit of a struggle. Uh, a lot of times, a bit of a struggle for academic uh, academic groups like those of myself. So we are interested in developing innovative concepts, right? And then I think you you start with an explorative phase in which you are not thinking too much about, let's say, scalability already, or maybe the A head, so the, the, the final implementation in the, let's mm -hmm. say, scalable numbers that Florian was just mentioning, which you have to, in the end, go towards eh? 10,000, 30,000, tens of thousands. Um, but but uh, that is not how we start usually our, our SA development of really new things. And I think that's a task more of an academic group. But we still, of mm. course, we have to think about it at some stage. Uh, and I think there is still, uh, uh, Peter was talking about quality control and how are you going to do that? How are you going to establish the quality of certain? So how are you going to define certain quality measures, for example, for certain chips? That, that, that's, that's an important thing. And at which point in time of the development are you going to do that? So what we are doing, and I think that I think it would be, a, I think there's a fair approach for many academic groups, is that you do both this really exploratory work, where you start new things. I mean, usually done by PhD students who are very creative, have bright ideas, but are pretty inexperienced, eh? which actually possibly also helps in creating those innovative ideas. Actually. Um, and, but, but we also collaborate with industry. So we're part of bigger consortia in which we directly collaborate with industry in which we uh, learn about uh, this, uh, uh, these applications, the numbers that are required, the reproducibility that's needed. And we are actually involved in discussions uh, on how to, how to establish that. So I think for scalability, you need, for example, uh, you need standards. You need also standards even in technology. Um, if, if I, I mean, the chips in my lab, and I think in most academic labs are used by PhD students who do things, you know, by hand, they do 10 experiments, they do 30 experiments. If we're looking at 550 experiments, you know, they established, they had, they choose the right control. Um, but it's, it's not aimed at, uh, not aimed at scalability. It's not aimed at user friendliness also, right? Uh, mm -hmm. it's always a lot of trying things in the lab. And if I think if you want to go really towards scalability, you need some kind of standardization. And there is there are efforts going on actually. I think in Europe, and I guess that Peter is also involved in that, and possibly yeah. Florian, had to think about so how do we standardize this this organ on chip? So maybe that, that's also a topic that we will explore a little bit later. But but that is that is something that we are also involved in. So then then we know also if we start this exploratory exploratory phase that in the development at some point, we need to go to a situation in which we choose the right material, uh, we have the right formats, we think about user friendliness, et cetera, et cetera. Although I don't think it's my academic task to really develop that, I think we should be prepared to think about this already in the exploratory phase, that this is something that we need to go towards to at some point. And for this, the collaboration is essential. So that's why we are also yeah. part of these, of these industrial consortia that are working on organship platforms. Yeah. So I believe if you think there is a, I think there is a common agreement. We say that that collaboration uh, are essential to understand what kind of need is there and what kind of scalability is needed to to understand where these systems are are going to be used. I mean, if we think about scalable system, um, I think it's mostly underestimated, or people need to aware that. There shouldn't be a bottleneck, which means that all elements in a certain, let's say, organ or chip system needs to be scalable or need to be available in a scalable format so that you can fit these together. And I think we talked about cell source, which is an important thing, and, and how to bring these in, in the chip. But then you have also the readout and the end. And I believe, Peter, I think we had some examples. I think endpoints is an important point. Yes, yeah, so I think it, it, it might be even the most important point until um, now. There was a lot of there's a lot of discussion, obviously, about scalability in terms of the technology, in terms of um, fabrication scale up, and, and and things like that, and also in terms of the cell sources, um, automating um, cell supplies and, and stem cell um, culture, for example. But one of the really big missing points is is, is readouts, um, and especially the more the more complex your system gets the harder is it to assess the, the system. 
And looking at a lot of the publications and a lot of the work in um, academic labs, it's a lot of it is um, imaging based or using very complex types of readouts. And if you really want to scale these systems, you can't just do confocal imaging of um, uh, 10,000 chips, um, even if you have very nice and fancy instruments. Um, so you really have to think about, and even if you would be able to do that, you have to analyze it. That's the next step. You create massive amount of data. So we have high content system. And I think this is really one of the, the key things to tackle, which is um, not um, looked at um, that much in, at the current stage, I would say. So would you even say that if you start to design a system, you should think on the other way. So what information do I want to get out of the system and how can I get it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, um, and this is something I, I only um, learned over, over years in working um, with the system that um, you have to start with three things. You have to start obviously with the, the biological, the tissue in mind, um, but you also have to start with the question you want to answer and the readouts. Um, and if you start with that from the beginning, um, that's the only chance in, in scaling things up later on. If you if you develop your system and then afterwards think about, okay, how do I read, how do I analyze it? And if you're extremely lucky, you find something which could be a scalable readout. Uh, yeah. But in the end, it, and does, it, it doesn't mean that you have to integrate sensors. It's obviously a, a, also a very um, nice approach, but um, just keeping in mind from the beginning how you wanna um, uh, assess the functionality in the end. Yeah. So, so I believe that readout is one of the first uh, first parameters that you have that you look at if you have a system flow on. If you if you go in more scaling, so how can I measure what what is cultured? Yeah, absolutely. And um, as you know, a little bit. I mean, I like images. I mean, that's that's clear. I'm a high content person, so. Um, High content is is just providing you with that large information um, um, about a culture, right? And uh, that's from that point of view, it's it's always my preferred choice or my, my first choice I'm thinking about. But it does not necessarily need to be a very complex reader. Um, I'm, I need to define maybe whether there's surrogate simple high content readout that I can potentially even multiplex where I can get a fast information and also analysis opportunity to look for the most interesting treatments that I would like to, to scan through basically, mm -hmm. and then separate um, the second more multiplex assessment potentially in a second pass. I mean, something like this could be done, but obviously um, it, it, as Peter said, it's, it's absolutely impossible to think about an organoid, for example, and to run multiple Z-Sacks uh, through a 384-bill plane mm. or something like this, and this in multiple times, you will end up with imaging times of several months, and this is mm. not helping you. It's just a too yeah. large turnaround time to analyze and to mm. come to the next conclusion. I think this is definitely something which is... Uh... Which where I have an example directly here from from Inspero is that a couple of years ago we developed a hard model, where a spheroid model that has a nice beating structure and when we could read out the beating etc. and it worked very well and had great characteristics. But one of the bottlenecks that we what what we saw is that the readout would need an imaging over a certain period of time. Um, and and to count basically the beating or to look at how the beating is is behaving, uh, or to have an electrophysiological system that that records it directly electronically, but the system was either not available or not at a price where the scaling would uh, would fit, or the readout of, of 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 imaging a certain beating micro tissue over let's say. 10 seconds or so was just too long to, to, to have it in a scalable format. And, and this was then the reason why we had to de-emphasize um, the, the, the development of the, of the heart micro tissue uh, because just there wasn't a scalable readout available um, at that time as um, just as an example in that direction. Yap, do you also develop readouts? So, I mean, you, you're developing Microsystems, the cells, etc. Do you think about also di directly integrating or developing readouts? Yeah, so we don't develop 
them ourselves, but we collaborate with others who are developing them. But I agree with Peter that if you look in general in this field, that um, there, there is probably too little attention to this from the beginning. Uh, so uh, so the, the, uh, people develop technologies, people working on the cell sources, people uh, making this system, you know, making it work, but then what? So how are you going to read out? And did you design it appropriately, basically, for, for be, being able to do that? Uh, and I have to admit that it's something maybe that, that we ourselves are not thinking about uh, enough, let's say, to, to start with. Because what, yeah. what do we usually do? We put things on, a, uh, let's say, standard microscope and we look at, the, at it with the microscope, right? So that's, that's the, the basic approach of most of the developments. But I think you should think a little bit more about that. And yeah. mentioning, uh, Peter was, I think, mentioning also integrated sensors. Some people are working on this mm -hmm. as well. Uh, that is uh, for technologies and engineers like myself is an interesting opportunity. But I think also that development needs better, let's say, alignment with what really is needed and, and what would you need to measure uh, depending on the on the application. Yeah, I think need to measure and it, mostly the integrated sensors also need some some pre coating, some functionalization. They need a, a calibration at the beginning. And I think all these different processes that are before the experiment and after the experiment need to be uh, considered uh, when you when you'd like to to integrate uh, sensors um, in this uh, in this direction. Fully agree, Olivier. Um, I also would like to mention that uh, such an integrated sensor could also help us for doing quality control, right? Because it will basically tell us and and very validate that the system is now ready for for its biological assessment. And yeah. this could be also a very nice approach to, to standardize as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, scaling, I mean, we know that if you look at, let's say, if you go a bit in, this, in the industrial setting, we know that um, that's the scaling or that the, the, in the drug development process, you have processes that are scaling at different sites. So at the beginning, you, you have the high throughput that, that is required. Um, in the towards the later stage, you can afford, I think, more complex system that are less scalable, where you do look more into the mechanisms of, of how a compound or different kind of compounds work on on a certain tissue, or even let different tissues um, in, interact with each other. So, when you design an organ on a chip system, are you already thinking? where it is going to be applied or is it so, so, so i think that that in this drug is uh, in the process we need a screening system so you you think already about where it's going to be applied or do you first let's say design the system and then you see okay that's that much scalable i think it's something what we can only use in the later stage because we just cannot scale it so so how do you relate your design of the system in relation to the drug development process. Maybe Peter has some comments there. Yeah, I, I think that um, it, it needs to be considered all the way in the beginning um, mm -hmm. because most of the models developed right now and by us and also others is um, they have a very similar um, kind of potential for scalability. Um, so you will be able to um, run a number of systems at the same time and also looking at the commercial ones and if you now want to work on a, on a different level of scalability you have to go back to the really the initial development you cannot just use the system you have developed and multiplex it um, that, that won't work so if you want to go to a, to a very high throughput um, screening approach you have to start with the, the enabling technology to actually achieve that um, and then build up the complexity from that the other, also in the other direction, if you want to have a, a, a multi-organ chip with a lot of different um, tissues interacting with each other with a very low um, um, throughput, you also have to um, start maybe not as much, but start with a different type of, um, of mindset from the beginning. So yes, I, I think um, you, you definitely have to um, follow different approaches from the beginning if you want to have um, different types of scalability. Yeah. So Florian, you're on the you're on the let's say more on the industrial side. Honestly, are you happy with what is what is going on in academia with regards to to scalability, or do you think 
I mean, these are all nice systems, but they're all at the far end of uh, at the late stage of drug development. It would be great to have more research that are more scalable. Um, yes, absolutely true. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, I'm, I'm happy with any of, of, of development that will bring us further to implementation of these models in, within, the, within the industrial setting. Both um, or all of these systems have at some point um, of the preclinical stage their, their use case, right? Of course, I would love to, to have more systems available that, that are scalable to that extent that we are known to work with. However, um, I guess it's the most important thing from my perspective is um, that you really, as we have said, start early with talking to your potential collaboration partner or being it in a, in a consortium as well, because um, this is such an interdisciplinary um, activity that is going on. I mean, I, I'm a chemist, but within, within my past years, I, I needed to think about engineering as well, right? Because mm -hmm. um, you need to understand which infrastructure is currently existing within the industry, which processes are existing, Currently, um, most pharmaceutical companies have their libraries arrayed, right? Does this necessarily need to be in some years' time as well? Maybe there are other concepts already arising that would offer other ways or other thinking of scalability. And it, it always helps to brainstorm and to, to bring in um, multiple disciplines into these, this equation, basically, and to find answers to this. Um, of course, the mini droplets formation, for example, are currently only in, used for, for single cells and for very small spheroids and definitely mm -hmm. not for organelles. But maybe in some point in time, we can also think about these kind of things. Yeah. So if we have, if we would be able to, to, to scale certain systems more heavily so that you have a higher scaling, how do you think it could change the drug development process if you can bring these systems to much more in early stage? Well, of course, you would be earlier able to identify the most useful and most promising compounds that should survive, right? And that mm -hmm. should hopefully also translate. Um, to be honest, if you have a reduced scalability, you need to come up with some smart solutions. I mean, uh, as I said, uh, um, pharmaceutical companies have treasure boxes full of small molecules. They have something like a million of compounds and if they only have a scalable system up to 10,000, they need to have some smart selections of which 10,000 compounds I would like to test, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's pretty likely that you may miss actually your type, your molecule of interest that you maybe have in your treasure box to treat a patient along the line, right? And yeah. um, that's obviously something what, what is currently the case, right? But yeah. maybe... Um, there are there are opportunities to come up with these selections if yeah. scaling is not possible let's see yeah. so i mean in a technology cycle you always have at the beginning the system that that drives the use and at a certain time point it switches that the need is driving the system so i mean job on your end i think on the academic side it might be a little bit less attractive to to create simple systems is that true so to, to make that that are not that complex or let's say that that's that that are just are simplified system uh, but that would be scalable is that something that you address or are you more interested in or is it maybe the case that academia likes to have highly integrated system because the simplicity is not that attra attractive to publish is that maybe a hurdle Mm, well, I don't know. It depends on which level you look at complexity, right? So I think mm -hmm. that if you um, if, if you look at this device, for example, it's incredibly simple if you look at it, right? I mean, everybody can use it, but if you would look inside, it's incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a challenge, actually, and I think it's sort of the title of this discussion even. Eh? So, so you want to reach sufficient complexity in order to uh, yeah, to have an added value, right? And to be able to do the thing, answer the questions that you would like to answer, but you need sufficient simplicity in order to be able to make it work and to make it work also in the industrial setting. And for academia, I mean, complexity is not uh, per se uh, a goal, right? So that's not so something that we pursue. Mm -hmm. 
uh, innovation is important and it can also be something that simplifies things even. I mean, very clever solutions for simplifying things are actually very attractive. That's actually something that I'm interested in, uh, making things simpler than, uh, yeah. than you would initially think they, they need to be. So it's not complexity itself that we're, that we're after, but we should have mm -hmm. sufficient complexity in order to yeah, uh, get an added value over existing systems, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe adding to the one point you, you mentioned, um, the, the, the question is what, what can you publish? Because this is what drives academia. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. as, we, as we mentioned before, robustness is a key criteria of, of scalability. And I think this is one of the big, big issues. Um, it, it is not possible for anyone in academia to just repeat the same experiment um, time over, over and over, and, and maybe even in the best case in multiple laboratories, test lots of different compounds. No one wants, this is not publishable. But this is not something academia can do per se. And I think this is one of the key issues with scalability coming from um, academia. It's not that the system has to be as complex, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. You want to build something nice and complex, but you just can't go this level um, of generating robustness. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Yeah? So, of course, we're yeah. driven in academia with, by what we, um, for, for a large part, we, what we can publish, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, robustness or even, let's say, scalability is difficult as mm. a topic for, for uh, scientific publications in, in high-end journals. So that is why it's also very attractive for academia to work on this, yeah. apart from the fact that we actually don't have the people and the infrastructure to do this, of course, at some point, mm. uh, go towards yeah. the scalability that Florian was just mentioning. That's something that we just can't do. Yeah. Although so how much is we have uh, concepts for this? Yeah. So how much is industry interested to, to, to close that gap, basically, to take first proof of concept experiments and to to try to make it reproducible. Is that something that you tried to advance? Did you did you contact academia or is that something what what industry, the end user can do? Or is there something in between that needs to be uh, covered? Well, I, I guess I can only speak for myself, right? And not for yeah. Or do you maybe have an example on that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, of course I'm, I'm I mean, I, I personally, I'm, I'm always looking around trying to, to understand where I can bridge a gap. Um, that's, that's clear. Um, obviously, this, this is pretty much dependent on the need, as you just said. I mean, for example, if I would assume if a pharmaceutical industry does not have, for example, an in vivo model available because this is simply not existing and, and, and maybe also not achievable, then there's a high need for such a such a more complex cellular model, right? To at least mm -hmm. try to to um, phenocopy what an in vivo model would would enable you to do, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. um, from that perspective, there there should be a high high interest of an industry to um, basically boost also development into this direction. Yeah. yeah. Well, like yeah. For example, an, an in vivo model would not be able to to um, translate efficiently because um, you are such on a human centric kind of treatment, for example, using biology, uh, biologics or something like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you look, um, maybe a, one of the latest last questions before we go into the questions. Um, so where are we with the organ and chip area is are we already addressing the real needs of industry or are we still pushing from uh, or does, is the system still driving the use? I, so so I, I have the feeling that we're in the transition, let's say. So uh, because um, um, I'm now more and more hearing, uh, so like uh, so, so these types of conversations that we have right now, I think we have more and more. Uh, so there are more and more links between academia and industry. We understand more and more what is really needed. Uh, but but we're at the beginning of that transition. I think it's it's not quite happening at the moment. You see that, and uh, Florian can of course. Uh, uh, know this knows this better. I think that let's say if you look general at the pharmaceutical industry, it's still a bit wait and see. So what? Uh, let's see what 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 happens here. 
picking up some things, but not at a very high rate at the moment. But I think that's that's accelerating. So I, I yeah, I think we're at a transition point, sort of. Mm. I, I would agree as well. I mean, there's, there's clearly certain pharmaceutical companies that are um, a little bit far um, advanced already, and, and others are uh, maybe a little bit um, reluctant. Um, but I guess it's 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 still it's still the case that we are trying to get confident with this concept, right? I mean, there there are huge premises with 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 on chips and advanced co um, complex models, and we all. I mean, at least in this roundtable, I, I guess we all believe in the concept and we would like to basically implement it. However, it's also to be fair to say that there are, there are still quite a number of things to be considered, that, um, meaning it's a time issue currently within the modern drug development process. Um, there are also multiple other opportunities for pharmaceutical companies still to get to a meaningful treatment, that's also clear. I mean, um, looking back at the history, a lot of um, nice treatments have been developed without the, the existence of complex cellular models. Mm. But clearly we are touching now a field of biology where these complex models will have their use. But we need to get experience with them. We need to clearly understand what to look at, what we can expect, what the limitations are and work on them. That's, that's mm. my point of view and, and still the beginning. Mm. So, Peter, in what opinion, how can we reduce that transition time? So how can we accelerate it? Do you have some thoughts on that? Um, I, I mean, there are lots of different approaches. I, I think one of the key things maybe touches upon what I mentioned earlier. Um, we have to find a way to increase the robustness and scalability, which cannot be done by, by academia. Pharma is not interested in doing it and also cannot kind of do it um, on their own and, and is not interested in funding it um, only in where there is a huge need where there where mm. there um, is um, or where if there's a gap which makes it mm. um, the house is to do it otherwise yeah <laughs> um, so we, we need to maybe rethink on also what what is the next steps um, maybe it, it's not a good idea for funding programs to build another liver chip to build another um, model of a, of a lung chip or whatever, but really think about how can we look at what is, has been developed and how can we move them, these things to the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, so how can we really improve this robustness? Um, and this could be something which um, has to be a public-private partnership. I think the, the, the big um, funding agencies um, has to have to pitch in, into that. Um, do things which are not the standard conventional um, uh, academic projects and bring these systems really to a next level fund. And um, I wouldn't call it a ring trial, but fund things where the same experiments are run in multiple um, labs at the same time. So I think this is a, this is a key thing. In the US, these, these tissue chip testing centers, for example, are a good approach in the right direction. And um, we need something similar um, on a European level to, to actually advance the technology. Yeah, I think that's an, an excellent conclusive remark for this first part. I think we now can open the discussion or the questions from, from the audience. I believe that Karen, you would be able to... I am going to walk you through the questions that have come in yeah. so far. We have quite a few, Olivier. So. Um, let's see what we can get through and anything that we can't cover, we'll, we'll make sure that we mm -hmm. uh, follow up with the audience members after the talk. Um, the first question is from Thomas, uh, who in response to some of your earlier definitions wanted to know if bioprinted organoids or even more complicated 3D bioprinted systems are something that any of you are intending to use. So who would be able to answer this? So on our end, Inspira is focusing on spherical self-aggregated um, systems um, at the moment. So the bioprinting is, is not something that we look closely at the moment. How about Peter, Jaap and Florian? I mean, we, we have been considering integrating some, some bioprinting aspect into the um, into our chips, but in most cases, we actually get um, 
let's say, better results in our view with, with um, generating compartmentalization through microfluidics. And um, anyway, we will have a rearrangement of the cells um, and a self assembly. So in our approaches, um, we're not really targeting this direction. Do you have bioprinting, Jaap? I believe if you don't mention, you must probably not. Oh, we don't do bioprinting. Hmm. We, we, do, we do use 3D printing, but then basically to, to print scaffolds, uh, scaffolds or to, to actually print the devices themselves. So we don't do that. I see, I see the, um, the merit of it and, and the promise of it. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a good approach to take. We don't do that ourselves. And as, uh, as Peter said, I see, yeah, maybe uh, more advancement uh, with, let's say, the microfilics-based approaches where you have the compartmentalization and, and the mm -hmm. fluidics that actually arranges uh, and steers the development. Uh, but I think I think both paths are, are are interesting. The organoids are maybe something separate, right? So there you have some good level of uh, physiology and pathophysiology, but very often also difficult in terms of controllability and reproducibility, etc. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I, I think that depends also on, again on the question that you would like to answer. But I think that let's say if you think about real uh, the the, the uh, controllability also of the system, then let's say the engineering approach using uh, microfit compartmentalization is the is is a problem the mo in my view the most promising one at the moment mm. you look at the development also of the different techniques yeah do we have another question karen yeah yes i'd like to combine a few questions into one for you from sabath and ria they both would like to know what exactly needs to be standardized in a mic microfluidic system and then I also have another question related to this from um, from Felix, who wants to know what is the maximum time that cells can be allowed to grow together before compound testing in order to consider its um, scale a cell model to be scalable. But let's start with the standards because I'm I'm blurring these together here. So, what exactly needs to be standardized in a microfluidic system? I think I, uh, I sort of coined that term first, right? The standardization. Uh, so, so what we what we have done uh, in, in collaboration also with many others is industrial partners, uh, and I think uh, Peter did a, a similar uh, thing uh, in other configurations. Is uh, so if you really want to get your uh, organ on chip uh, uh, application. Uh, into industrial use, you need to, I think, comply with standards and workflows that are being used there and, in, and, and also with infrastructure. If what you develop does not fit into workflows, which are very often standardized, or uh, let's say uh, infrastructure in which uh, heavy investments have been made by industry, you won't be able really to get it in. So, so that defines sort of standards of the system that you in the end need to develop. And those are basically maybe global global standards. Uh, if you look at and and that's why we think that also modularity might be important. So we are basically thinking of uh, uh, multi well plate standards, right? That uh, uh, are compatible with many of these workflows, in which you take a modular 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 approach of making that let's say more uh, extended with complexity, so to so to speak in which you basically capture the organ on chip functionality, but still within that specific standard. So that is actually what I mean with standardization. And if you, and if you also make agreement between organ on chip developers about these standards, then you can actually also uh, do common development or that, that is basically can be immediately applied also in, in that standardized setting. And that is also a big advantage, I think, of standardization. Uh, yeah, so that that's maybe my global thought. About. Mm -hmm. So standardization. The follow-up question, yep. follow question to that is next to standardization, what role does system modularity play in reaching higher robustness and complexities? Maybe I, maybe I can answer that. I think this is a modularity is an is an aspect which is driven a lot from from um, academia, and in some way this could even be hindering um, robustness in the, in the end. So, I mean, there, there are two different approaches to build very modular system that you can arrange as you want, or to build systems that are um, entirely, um, um, let's say, predefined, 
um, which will make it much easier to scale up, um, to make, make it more robust and to scale it. So I think the, 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 these are two terms which are, which could, could go along with each other, but which also can have um, uh, lead to issues in, um, with each other. And maybe to the, to the scale up, um, to the standardization question, I think I read it in the chat, there will be a, a very, very um, um, good um, conference or workshop on that um, very soon covering the standardization in all the different aspects. And I, I really recommend to participate there. I think that uh, there, there's a link to that event on the in the chat window as well. You might yeah. check that out. It's uh, it's put on by um, C C E N C and Cinelec. Yeah. Putting science into standards, Oregon on a chip mm -hmm. on the 28th through 29th of April. Sounds yeah. like it would be a really great event to attend. I think we have okay. time for another. So one, or two one more question. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I have. Wait a minute. There was there was one more question regarding um, what is the acceptable. So the one uh, this is specifically for you, Florian. What is the maximum time that cells can be allowed to grow before compound testing in order to consider a cell model to be scalable? I guess it pretty much depends. I mean, um, that's that's something what is what is I guess unique if you if you work in the industry to understand. Um, you have opportunities basically to time your experiments, right? So you can adapt actually your process and uncouple, for example, the, the cell generation from the overall process. So meaning instead of having fixed defined terms every second week of running an experiment, you can actually accept that the maturation of a system will take, let's say, 40 days or even longer and exactly time your experiment that it will start again after a couple of these maturation times that is needed, right? So I guess scalability in that sense is, is then needs to be adapted or the overall process needs to be adapted and does not necessarily need to be uh, of lower scalability than something that is already available in large quantities at a certain uh, time point um, over one week, for example. So this is there in these days, you can have also automation systems that will cope with these kind of things. Thank you, Florin. Um, I'm gonna read two more questions for you guys and then I think we should get on to your vision statements um, to, to stay on point as Olivier said. Um, I have a question from Renifred who wants to know, how do you want to assess AOPs just with functionality? Would you propose that um, microphysiological systems are just useful, useful for functional readouts, not reflecting different molecular bases for the same readout? Is this too complicated? This is, I think, to the entire panel. Maybe I can add on that. I think it is not too complicated. It's in the best case, you can do both. Um, but it really depends on um, in the other, on, your, on your resources and also the, the, the parameters you want to look at. Um, if you can do functionality readouts and really directly correlate that maybe to, an, uh, to a clinical endpoint, this is maybe the best thing to do. And then to do some molecular analysis at the end. Um, but it really de depends and organoid chip can give access to both. But I think the key advantage is to have the, the functionality. Anybody else want to add to that before I give you one more question? Thank you, Peter. Right. So I have a, um, another question from Winifred who wants to know how much money should researchers and industry plan for the quality control to prevent reproducibility problems, especially with changes at the molecular levels? Um, for example, weekly measurements of epigenetics, RNA-seq, SNP analysis, when the functional, re functional level readouts are not sufficient? I know that's a difficult question, but. I mean, we can turn in the ways of how much budgets do we have to do this? <laughs> Or is there a budget? I think it's a difficult okay, question. Maybe that's to a question that can't be asked. Okay. Yeah. You want me to ask one more before we go on? Um, yeah, maybe one last one. One last one. Um, 
Do you see a use for organ on a chip as a tool in life science research, complementing cell culture and animal model, but on a much smaller scale than, for example, pharma compound screening? Uh, for example, understanding disease rather than finding treatments. Yes, I, I see everybody nodding. I think, yes, I, I certainly agree. I think that's an important uh, application of the organ on chip. Uh, uh, yeah, of course, I, understanding understanding disease development, for example, uh, finding, finding uh, getting knowledge, basically, mechanistic insight into things can also help, you know, develop future treatments. So definitely, I agree that this is an important uh, application of these systems. Yeah. And I, I, I would actually add, um, I totally disagree with on a much smaller um, scale. I think this is really where the big scale impact of organ ownership system can be. If you look at the number of animal studies run, it's not pharma companies, it is biomedical basic research. So I think it could be a huge, and this is something which is not targeted at, at all that much right now, but this could be one of the biggest um, impact fields of, of organ ownership. Good, I think that is relating us directly to, I think, final remarks for from every panelist. So maybe one or two sentences on, on, on how will organ skip, uh, chips scale in 2030 or where are we with organ chips then? So, so how do you see the future? So maybe Florian, I let you start. <laughs> well, um... Obviously, I hope that they will, will reach actually acceptance and that they are um, getting to an earlier time into the pharmaceutical industry uh, lineup as they are right now, obviously. Um, where, if they will be in screening, I have my doubts currently, right? Um, but, but maybe they are already at a stage where you can um, basically define what your clinical um, candidate will look like. Um, they will be used to, to um, yeah, scan down from the last 100 uh, clinical candidates um, to the number of clinical candidates that you will bring, that you would like to bring forward. That's, that's I guess, um, unfortunately, the speed I could see right now. Mm. Um, obviously, Drug discovery is, is a very dynamic process and potentially if, if certain biology is being um, focused on where these models will have a huge impact, then it could also boost the, the implementation of those. But um, obviously I cannot foresee how um, other pharmaceutical companies, for example, are currently working on these and how far they are already. Um, I know that there are quite some initiatives to drive the use of those um, to, to these um, increased um, use and hopefully they will be successful. I guess it will be another interesting tool that we, that we will be able to use for drug discovery. Yeah. Final sentences from you, Peter. Yeah, maybe I, I would, my vision or my hope is that in, in 2030, we don't ask the question, on where can organ ownership systems fit in the in the drug development pipeline, but that we are at a level with organ ownership, organoid technology, and maybe in silico approaches to ask a different questions. So how could a novel type of drug development pipeline look like based entirely human centric? So not fitting these new models into a, a, a standard pipeline, but really rethinking the entire the entire concept and having the tools there to build up a, a, a new approach. Yeah. So that is my, my hope and my vision as well. Have have the confidence in this in these tools and technologies. Yup. Yeah, so then if I get questions like these, I think okay, uh, ten years ago, if somebody would have <laughs> asked me a question about predicting the present, what would have I answered and would have I been right? I don't think I would have been right. So these are difficult questions, but I, I basically I, I agree with, with Peter. So I, I and Florian both. I think uh, if you look at the development, current development of, of organ on chip, I said it's sort of in a transition. Uh, I don't think in 2030 we will have full blown application and use in drug development, but uh, indeed the hope is that at that point in time we have a very good idea of where it fits, you know, within that whole process, mm -hmm. and and how and how that should 
and how that should be, be realized at, at a point in time. Uh, and, and I also hope that next to that, so that's uh, next to the drug development, eh, so the, the application that was already been mentioned, that it's also more widely spread used uh, in, let's say, mechanistic studies uh, um, to understand disease development, to get mechanistic insights in, uh, in uh, biomedical studies, that you will see that more and more. And that actually it's taken up by people who are not uh, at this moment actually active in this field itself, right? Uh, because uh, uh, yeah, we have organ on chip, but if you look at the whole field of, uh, let's say, biomedical research and drug development, I think there is only part of it that is really into the circle at the moment. So I hope that the circle will be then much more widespread uh, at that point in time in 2030. Yeah, thanks. So from my end, maybe also have a little bit of vision in, in that direction. So what I think, I mean, Jaap, you showed this, this mobile device that has a huge amount of complexity in the insight. And what I would see is also that, that more and more with the development of the organ and chip, um, the, the fine features inside how the whole system works become less relevant, but that we more and more uh, the relevance is the system, the output that it gets. So that's at a certain point, we don't really care anymore how the inside is basically constructed, but how it behaves if we if we add a compound. And and so that that's the output and the endpoint, basically the function of the system becomes more relevant as the engineering inside. Um, so as concluding remarks, first of all, I would like to thank everyone um, joining this, this round table, uh, specifically also the, the panelists uh, sharing um, great, uh, great insights. I think the we have three take home messages that I've written down here. Uh, one of them is that endpoints are crucial. This is something that engineers, biologists need to think about at the beginning and include in the design thinking at the very early stage. We have to think about quality control, so include protocols that allow you to continuously check um, if the function of your system is, is working and ensure reproducibility over, over such procedures. And that collaboration, early collaboration with pharmaceutical industry with the need is, is critical to build systems that, that fit the purpose and that have the scalability that is needed in a specific in a specific stage and with these concluding remarks i think i can hand over to to karen thanking again the panelists and the audience for staying at this round table and karen i think you have a couple of announcements to do thank you olivier i just mostly wanted to thank everybody for attending and to the panelists for this excellent discussion and the insights that you've given us and thoughts to consider as we move forward with organ on a chip systems. I do encourage all of you to stay tuned for our upcoming Visionary Speak roundtables. We have two um, coming up planned. One, The first one in April will be focused on preclinical diabetes type 1 research. A look at where we've been in the past, uh, where we are currently, and where we expect to be in the future with new um, developments in technology and islet modeling. And also, we have a really interesting um, roundtable coming up where we'll be talking about uh, screening in 3D and whether it's actually ready for prime time yet. But thank you all again. This was really a wonderful roundtable. I hope that all of you um, learned a lot and we hope to see you again soon.